Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, October 11th. Today, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about Russia raining down missiles this week on Ukraine and shattering a relative sense of security all over the country, including in the capital of Kyiv, which hasn't been bombed since June. Does this mark a terrifying new phase in the war? Julia's here with the unfortunate answer. And later on, Tina Wynn comes by to talk about the conservative icons and influencers in Elon Musk's text messages and what their words might reveal about his potential plans for Twitter. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers the Peak. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. And if you, uh, you know, downloaded today's podcast, uh, if you're streaming it, you probably have a sense of what Julia's here to talk about, which is Russia. Did I pronounce it correctly? Russia. Yeah, almost. Very close. And how do you pronounce, how would you say Ukraine in Russian? Ukraine. I'll practice that. Julia, yesterday, I at least woke up to the news that Russia rained down a bunch of missiles all over Ukraine, over a dozen cities, multiple people killed. The thing that jumped out at me as a uh, you know, less informed observer of this conflict uh, than you was Kiev has not been bombed since June. It's kind of felt like throughout the summer, things there were not returning to normal, but like as normal as compared to when the war first began. And while uh, you know men and women are engaged in a war on the eastern front of the country, but it did feel like this might have shattered a sense of security. One of the missiles landed, I think, like a thousand yards from Zelensky's office, I read, or I heard an NPR, I think, this morning. What is your read on the both physical and psychological impact of this missile strike that just happened? Well, I think that was exactly the point. It was to demonstrate to Ukrainians that, you know, just because you guys are having success in this counteroffensive in the South and the East, it has not in any way diminished our ability, our being the Russian military, to hit you wherever, whenever, at a time and place of our choosing. The Russian government was telling their people that they hit military infrastructure, which was a bold-faced lie. They hit playgrounds, they hit parks, and mostly they hit civilian infrastructure. They hit water plants, electricity plants, uh, power plants, right as the country's heading into winter. So immediately, cities all over Ukraine started losing water, started losing power. There were reports that Ukraine would have to stop exporting energy to Europe because it's a kind of transit point for Russian energy, which hasn't really stopped going through Ukraine throughout this war, ironically, to Europe. And Ukraine has said, uh, we're probably going to have to stop because we have to keep our people warm through this winter. So it has this kind of double effect. And I think it's not coincidental that this is happening right after General Suravikin, who was in charge of Russian military operations in Syria, took over the command of the quote-unquote special military operation in Ukraine. He was known as the Butcher of Aleppo. 
He earned the nickname Armageddon. While operating in Syria, he bombed the Damascus suburb of Ghouta into the ground. And it's not a coincidence that a few days after his appointment, we're seeing this kind of brutal, essentially kind of carpet bombing of Ukraine, not of military targets, but of civilian targets, a kind of special inflicting of pain on the civilian population to make them suffer in this war. So General Armageddon, now in charge of the conflict, is it his style to wantonly bomb cities? Or is that just in this case, it might have felt like the best way for Russia to reassert its strength over the everyday population of Ukraine? I wouldn't say it's wantonly, it's purposefully, right? It's to terrorize the civilian population into submission, to basically break their will to resist, to completely zombify them through fear so that there is no more will to resist. So they are so broken through pain and suffering and terror that they at at some point don't care who rules them. That is very much a tactic that Assad and the Russians used in Syria. And with his appointment, it seems like Putin and Russia were at least willing to try going in that direction in Ukraine, in part to appease the hardliners. This was very clearly, and Putin said as much on Monday, this was retaliation for the bombing of the Crimean Bridge across the Kerch Strait. Putin said, this was basically a warning shot. You fuck with us, this is what we'll do to you. If you hit targets in Russia, this is what we'll do to you. A very famous Russian uh, investigative journalist pointed this out on Twitter, that this is kind of a classic tactic of like a domestic abusers. You portray the victim as the aggressor for fighting back. Right. The official... Twitter account of Ukraine after the <laughs> bridge exploded, caught on fire. Uh, they tweeted, sick burn. Uh, which is like <laughs> sorry, a pretty funny <laughs> troll. I don't know. Russia's not tweeting sick burn after launching 16 missiles into 16 cities in, in Ukraine. Sorry, that bridge was A, connecting Russia to territory that it annexed illegally. That bridge was used to, in part, to supply military bases in Crimea. It was Putin's pride and joy. It was built with a lot of corruption, including with a a contract that went way, 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 way over budget to Putin's childhood judo buddy. It was blown up at like 5 a.m. when there were almost no cars on the bridge. These strikes were timed with morning rush hour. They were aimed at kindergartens, at universities, at civilian infrastructure on purpose. Early on Monday morning, a Russian missile hit a pedestrian bridge, partly made of glass, is known as the Glass Bridge in Kiev, where people mostly went to take selfies because it's just a very scenic kind of overlook, right? So they purposely targeted a pedestrian bridge where people went to take selfies in retaliation for this bridge. That's not a, like, you don't even have to say sick burn after that. That's just like, we're fucking psychopaths. What you saw was uh, the bridge went up in flames on Saturday morning. It took Putin quite a while to say something. Sunday night, he finally came out in this weird little, very short video that he posted 
where he looks very angry. His eyes are red. And he's meeting with his old uh, college classmate and friend from the KGB, Alexander Bastrykin, which is the who's the head of the investigative committee. Very scary institution. And Bastrykin says, we have determined that it was the Ukrainian special services and we know who did it and we know which route he took. And he names a very strange route that this 18-wheeler took, somehow going from Bulgaria to Russia, but somehow avoiding Turkey. Anyway, he names a very strange route. And then just a few hours later, the missiles start flying. So, right, like they set it up. They said like, oh, look, we in 36 hours, we found who was responsible. We found the guy. We found the truck. We found the route he, he took. And within a few hours, we're meeting out justice. It was very classically Russian. Like, we got to do it by, by the book, by our own weird book. How do you think Ukraine responds to this? And also, are Ukrainians going to have to start to live with the fact that missiles are going to start falling from the sky in a way that they haven't for the last four or five months? Well, they have in certain parts of, of Ukraine, right? If you're in the south and east of the country, you were constantly living under threat of missiles. And this threat of missiles has been kind of coming and going. I don't think they were ever really truly free of that threat. And I think, yeah, probably in the near future, as as the situation continues to get worse for Putin on the battlefield, I think he's going to, he and General Armageddon are going to get more and more vicious by hitting back at the civilian population because they can't win on the battlefield, which is a pretty sick strategy. It was interesting because these missile strikes were preceded by missile strikes on the Zaporizhia region, which is strange. And they were overnight, so they killed a lot of people in bed while they were sleeping. And this is a region that Russia just annexed. It claimed that this was now Russia, that these people were Russian, that they had just liberated them. And so now they're bombing their own territory and their own people that they claim to have liberated from the terror of Ukraine. Like we're getting into a new phase where it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Now you see why my newsletter is called Tomorrow Will Be Worse because it's like every day is worse than the day before. Okay, Julia, thank you so much. Um, Hopefully we won't wake up to news tomorrow morning to more Russian missiles, but I have a hunch that's going to keep happening after this conversation for many months to come. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, joined today in the studio by Tina Wynn. I feel like we've just gone through a wormhole back to April when Elon Musk first agreed to buy Twitter. And everyone in the media in particular was rushing around trying to figure out what this means for Twitter, but also mostly what it means for themselves. And also like, what are Elon's politics anyway? You've written before this politics are sort of centristy, liberalish, but Joe Rogan-esque anti-cancel culture politics. He was a big Obama guy, and now he's sort of a DeSantis guy. But we also got some new insights a few weeks back into the sort of political milieu that Elon has surrounded himself with with the hundreds of texts that were released as part of the pre-trial proceedings in his litigation against Twitter. Those texts were pretty revealing. I was curious what caught your eye there. So there were 
a lot of tweets that I had to come through and half of it was, you know, all of the business stuff. But then you started seeing all of these texts from people like Joe Lonsdale, who people who were like trying to shuttle ideas behind the scenes from Republicans. Ron DeSantis's name came up there. There was an article from this uh, right wing site called Revolver that said that if Elon Musk bought Twitter, it would mean the end of the quote unquote globalist American empire. There was a guy there who was like, maybe you should appoint a Blake Masters type to be VT of content moderation. At one point, Joe Rogan, he texted Elon going, quote, are you going to liberate Twitter from the censorship happy mob? From there, you can kind of get a sense of like who is planting bugs in Elon's ear about what his Twitter moderation content's going to look like. He's kind of hinted at it on in his tweets, but to see some people like reinforcing his worldview so thoroughly in his private life kind of shows one where he's getting his information from to who he's more inclined to listen to. Like he's definitely not going to media matters. I will just put it that way. Yeah, yes. I mean, like superficially, at least looking at the kind of people that Elon is texting with and associating with the kind of people who populate his social circles. You can definitely see why liberal commentators and a lot of people in the media, frankly, were sort of on edge when Elon initially said he was going to buy Twitter and why they are once again on edge now that it looks like that deal is actually going to close. They seem to think that the platform is going to change in ways that make it less friendly to the kind of content moderation policies that they have espoused for years and years. And in fact, Twitter has become a, um, a more closed space in certain ways. It's become safer. There is less harassment. It is also more likely that certain people will get booted from the platform or suspended for certain kinds of speech. And there is a presumption that with Elon coming in to take over this company, that that will go away. Yeah. We're taping this podcast like a couple days, maybe a day or so after Elon welcomed Kanye West back onto Twitter. And then Kanye got booted off of Twitter by being blatantly anti-Semitic. So I don't know whether that kind of content will be a bannable offense under Elon. Here's the thing. Does Elon go for a theoretical, ideological view of what free speech on the internet should look like? Or is it just going to be whatever it is Elon wants it to be? I don't really see any indication that he's putting together some sort of strict rule other than people should just say whatever it is they want. But I don't see anything right now that indicates that he's going to not let this become the next 4chan. He dropped the whole effort to buy Twitter and he spent a fortune trying to get out of this deal when he realized that it was a bad deal for him financially, that he'd overpaid, which to me says two things. One, he cares more about the money than the politics. And two, if he wants this business to be a success, he is actually going to have to be careful about how he rebuilds the product. I suspect that when he really gets his hands around this thing and he talks to engineers and experts, they're going to point out to him, look, you can loosen the rules but you can only go so far before the neo-Nazis come back from Gab and these other right-wing Twitter alternatives. Brands are not going to want to be associated with Twitter if it's a space where Kanye West can go on anti-Semitic rants. And if you want to build new revenue lines for this product, for instance, by charging brands and big companies to have access to the site, they're not actually going to want to be there if it's not a safe space for their brands and for their clients. Right. Like there was this one person in the uh, text who was like, we should get Mr. Beast to come on this platform and create content. And Mr. Beast is, um, for people not obsessed with YouTube, probably the biggest content creator on the internet. But all of his stuff is super family friendly. 
he's not going to get that big of an audience if he's not family friendly, if parents are not okay letting their 10 year olds just like consume his content on end. It's definitely not going to be a family friendly place if you let Kanye West make anti-Semitic rants. Yeah. And by the way, to to go back to what we were talking about before, the different kind of people that Elon is associating with in his texts, it's revealing to me that on some level, these guys, look, they, they, they have his phone number. They are messaging him. We don't actually see a lot of communication back from Elon. That's one of the things that stood out to me is how one-sided some of these conversations are. That could be a function of just what was revealed in the pretrial discovery process. Maybe we can't see, you know, some of his texts back later or phone calls that he placed to them. But more than anything else, it looked to me like a bunch of conservatives trying to get Elon more involved and maybe him being too busy or, or maybe him being too uninterested to respond. Justin Amash, you mentioned, offered to help him with free speech issues. And then Elon brushed him off. Yeah. He was like, I just don't own Twitter yet. Right. And then you had Joe Lonsdale. You also mentioned he offered to connect Elon with Ron DeSantis. And Elon just responds, haha, cool. Yeah. (laughs) One of the more interesting exchanges that I saw in the text tranches was this unidentified number who sent him an article from Revolver that was like, this article is really good. You should read it. It's the one where he predicts how the globalist empire is going to fall. And Elon just doesn't respond to it. It's in, I don't know who it is. I don't think anyone knows who that blocked number is, but Elon not interacting with it, I think is like fairly telling. Yeah, Elon's politics have upset various factions for various and predictable reasons. But I think sort of what you're circling here is that we know less about Elon's politics, I think, than is easy to assume on the face of it. And given that he has bought this company for $44 billion and presumably intends to sell it one day, for that price or more, he is going to need to find ways to make this platform a success. And he's not necessarily going to do that by driving off tens of millions of monthly active users, some of the most devoted users in the media in particular, by making it an inhospitable place to spend your time. Whether or not that vision is compatible with bringing Donald Trump back on, we'll see. Is your prediction that Trump will be back on this platform, say, this time next year? So... Trump has openly stated that he is going to stay on Truth Social and not go back on Twitter. There is something in the contract that he signed with the vehicle that's supposed to take his company public that's like, if we make this merger happen, Trump is not allowed to post any personal things on Twitter. He is allowed to post political content on Twitter, and it has to be six hours after he posted his first content on Truth Social. The only value that True Social has at the moment is the fact that it's Donald Trump's platform and he's able to say whatever it is that he wants. Would he rather have a vehicle that's not really making a lot of money, but is wholly owned by him and he can set the terms of whether he's online or not? Or would he want to go back on Twitter and be subjected to the fair weather rulings that Elon Musk might make? I mean, remember, Elon could easily one day go like, oh, man, yeah, this is a great idea. I love having Trump back on Twitter. Yay, free speech. And then the other day go, "Eh, you know what? I don't really like Trump on Twitter anymore. Bye. Yeah. And by the way, the merger with DWAC that you mentioned, the the SPAC that is going to take Trump media public, that merger is already in danger. Looks like it may not go through. And in fact, it seems like now there's even less reason for Trump to push for that merger to close successfully if he has this off-ramp back onto Twitter and doesn't really need this platform anymore. But um, Tina, thanks for coming by and explaining all this stuff. It's totally fascinating as always. 
Yeah, this was fun. Who knows? Maybe next week Trump will be back on Twitter. Ah, crap. I'm going to lose that bet with Dylan Byers. I'm not getting in the middle of that one between you and Dylan, but um, I'll be watching enthusiastically to see how it turns out. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 